The Guardian. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Kerry McCarthy. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and happy anniversary. Um, question number one. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I was, uh, I was unaware of that event, but I join you in wishing you a very happy anniversary. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to craftsman Andrew Found from the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, Corporal Lloyd Newell from the Parachute Regiment, and Private Gareth Bellingham from the 3rd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment. They were talented, brave and dedicated soldiers who have made the ultimate sacrifice overseas for the safety of British people at home. We send out our deepest condolences to their families, their friends and their colleagues. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Kerry McCarthy. Thank you. Um, I thank the Prime Minister for that response, and can I associate myself and my constituents with the moving tributes that he's just paid? A year ago today, the Chancellor stood up in the House to deliver his first budget. significant impact on child poverty. Can I recommend that the Prime Minister watches the BBC documentary Poor Kids to find out how the other half lives? And can I ask him if he regrets allowing his Chancellor to take money away from families with children rather from the bankers who caused the financial crisis in the first place? I will certainly look at the programme the Honourable Lady mentions, but what I would say is, even at a difficult time, this government put more money into child tax credits for the poorest families. We've frozen the council tax, and we've actually taken steps to help working families. And the budget and the subsequent budget, neither of them actually raised child poverty because of the steps that we took. We inherited a complete mess from the party opposite, but we're dealing, it, dealing with it in a way that protects families. Angie Bray. Can the Prime Minister confirm that uh, this country will not be contributing a penny towards the Greek bailout other than what we contribute to the IMF? The Honourable Lady is right. We are uh, senior members of the IMF. We sit on the IMF board. We obviously have responsibilities as members of the IMF. But what I'm clear about is we were not involved in the first Greek bailout. We are not members of the Eurozone, and we're not going to become members of the Eurozone as long as I'm standing here. I don't believe the European financial mechanism should be used for Greece, and we've made very clear within Europe we don't think that's appropriate, and I don't believe that should happen. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to craftsman Andrew Found from the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, Corporal Lloyd Newell from the Parachute Regiment and Private Gareth Bellingham from 3rd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment. They all served their country with dedication and bravery and our hearts go out to their family and friends. Mr Speaker, Armed Forces Day is also coming up this Saturday. And that is an opportunity to remind us all of the service that is provided by our armed forces in Afghanistan, in Libya, and all around the world. And I think it is a moment to recognise the service they provide with honour and courage for our country. Mr Speaker, we support the mission in Libya, but in the last week, both the first Sea Lord and the Commander-in-Chief Air Command have raised concerns over the prospect of an extended campaign. Can the Prime Minister take this opportunity to assure the House that sufficient resources are in place to maintain Britain's part in the mission at the current rate of engagement? 
first of all, can I join the uh, Right Honourable Gentleman in paying tribute to our armed forces and particularly looking forward to Armed Forces Day on Saturday, uh, where we'll be celebrating the contribution they make to our national life and also the enormous amount they do to keep us safe. In terms of the mission in Libya, similar to the mission in Afghanistan, of course it is funded out of the reserve, so it does not put uh, additional pressures on the defence budget. And I've had sought assurances and received them from the Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, General Sir David Richards, that we are capable of keeping up this operation for as long as it takes. Now, I think that is vital, and I would argue uh, that the pressure is building on Gaddafi. Time is on our side, not on Gaddafi's side. And when you look at what's happening in Libya, where you see a strengthening of the revolt in the west of Libya, you see more people deserting Gaddafi's regime, you see growing unpopularity of his regime, and indeed our coalition holding strong, uh, I think time is on our side, the pressure is growing, and I believe we'll take it to a satisfactory conclusion. Mr Speaker, I'm absolutely with the Prime Minister that we should keep up the pressure on the Libyan regime. And as he knows, we do provide our full support for the mission. But don't the concerns that have been expressed by members of our armed forces point to something very important, which is the need to look again at the Strategic Defence and Security Review precisely to make sure that we have the right capability and we have the right focus. Now, the the Foreign Secretary described the Arab Spring as a more important event than 9-11. But the national security strategy published last year doesn't mention Libya, Egypt or Tunisia. Isn't it right, in the light of the changes that we've seen, to look again at the Strategic Defence and Security Review to make sure that we can sustain the conflict in Libya? I'm grateful for the question because it's an important point. One of the reasons for having a National Security Council that sits weekly is all the time to ask, are we, have we got the right resources? Do we have the right strategy? And we've had a review of the uh, National uh, Security and Defence Review uh, over the last uh, year. But the point I'd make is this. That, that Strategic Defence Review did actually put in place uh, mechanisms to say that we may well be fighting two conflicts at the same time. It also put in place the necessity of having very flexible armed forces, so exactly the sort of operations that we are fighting uh, and dealing with in Libya. And the point I'd make also to the Honourable Gentleman is it does seem to me strange, having not had one for ten years, to then want to have two strategic defence reviews within one year. I think we've got the right flexibilities in our armed forces. They're performing magnificently in Libya. If anything, I'd like to speed up the implementation of the strategic defence review because so so much of the new equipment we're looking to have in terms of drones uh, and things like that, it'd be more helpful to have them right now. So far from being the wrong strategic posture, it's actually right and it's good that we're putting it in place. Mr Speaker, I think it will come as news to the wider defence and security community that there's been a review of the original strategic defence and security review. And if there indeed has been a review since the Arab uh, Spring took place, then why doesn't the Prime Minister publish the results of that review? Let's, Let's have a consultation with the experts who know about these issues, because as you will see, there is clear concern across our military about some of these issues. Let me just ask the Prime Minister finally, when our, uh, and let me say this to him in all sincerity, when our, mili- when, when, our, when, our, when our military chiefs, when our military chiefs raise concerns and raise legitimate concerns about the conduct of our operations, surely it's not the right thing to say, to say you do the fighting and I'll do the talking. In, in, in retrospect, Mr Speaker, wasn't that very crass and high-handed? 
I have, I have huge respect for the people who run our armed services. They do an incredibly good job. They are very professional people, and they're involved in the National Security Council. They were involved in drawing up the Strategic Defence Review. The only point that I have tried to make in recent days is I think when you are at war, and we are in both Afghanistan and Libya, I think it's very important, whether you're a political leader or whether you're a military leader, to think very carefully about what you're about to say. Mr John Thurso, can I ask the Prime Minister if he is aware of the decision abruptly made to close the passport office in Wick, which has obliged a six-year-old boy to make a 300-mile round trip for an interview and another constituent to travel to Newcastle. Is this acceptable? Obviously, I look very closely at the point my uh, honourable friend raises, but of course, in the modern age, we have all sorts of ways of carrying out interviews that don't necessarily involve people having to travel to a passport office. So what matters is having an efficient service so people can get the documentation they need so they can go on the holiday they want. Mrs Mary Glyndon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Given the number of U-turns the Prime Minister has made, including on sentencing, NHS reform, forestry sell-off and schools it is a wonder that he knows which way he's facing. But will he now have the front to ensure that relief measures are put in place for those women who are hardest? Prime Minister. I, uh, I'm afraid I didn't get uh, all of that, but um, <laughs> that is the uh, that's the trouble with. Um, it's a reminder of the importance of government backbenchers keeping calm and quiet, not least so the Prime Minister can hear properly. How helpful that would be. The Prime Minister. Probably also if you don't read out the whips bit at the first bit of the question, then we could uh, get the second bit of the question, which I think was about um, the very important point. The very important point about women and pensions. And what I would say is this look, I do think it's right to have the equalisation of men's and women's pension age at 65, and that is going ahead. And I also think it's important to raise the pension age to 66, because the fact is people are living longer in our country. That's a good thing, but we have to make sure we can pay for good and decent pensions for the future. It seems to me the alternative is to stick your head in the sand, end up with a situation where you'd end up either cutting pensions or building up debts for our children that would frankly be irresponsible. So this government is taking difficult decisions, but I think they're the right ones. Well, Ian Stewart. Prime Minister agree that there is still too much homophobia in sport, especially football, and the event he is hosting later today in Downing Street will go some way to tackling that prejudice. I completely agree uh, with my honourable friend, and I'm delighted to be hosting a party for Britain's lesbian, gay and transgender community in number 10 Downing Street today. One of the issues in sport is how few out players there are in all sorts of sport, and I applaud those who have come out and who will be coming to my party tonight, and I hope that will encourage school children to recognise homophobic bullying is completely unacceptable in our society today. Jessica Morden. Thank you, Mr Speaker. If the Prime Minister is serious about tackling the issue of runaway fathers, which he said last week, why is he making it harder for single mothers to get maintenance payments by charging them to use the child support going to go on funding a child support agency mechanism. It's right that we do. But I don't think it's, it's wrong to ask people to make a contribution to that. Taxpayers currently are putting in a huge amount of money. They'll go on putting in money, but to ask people to pay towards the costs, I don't think reduces the impact of what I said at 
at all. People that walk away from their responsibilities and don't fund their children, that shouldn't be allowed to happen in Britain today. Yeah. Oliver Colville. Um, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Next year is the centenary of the death of Captain uh, Robert Falcon Scott on the Antarctic. Does my right honourable friend recognise that this brave historic son of Plymouth left a significant scientific legacy which is still today helping to form the world's environmental agenda? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I thank my honourable friend for raising this issue, and it is an important uh, centenary coming up, and I'm very pleased that so much is going on across the country to celebrate that, particularly in, in his home city of Plymouth. I would make the point that it's not just the scientific discoveries that are important, it's the inspirational figure, the adventurer, the explorer, uh, that incredible sense of, of duty and, and uh, adventure that he had that I think inspires young people today. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has been forced to abandon his original plans on sentencing. Will he now change his mind on the proposal to prevent police holding the DNA of those arrested but not charged with rape? Well, we, we will look carefully at the issues of, of, of DNA. But I have to say, I have to say, I have to say to the right honourable gentleman, we inherited an unacceptable situation with a DNA database that had grown out of control and without proper rights for people. We put in place a better system, always room to see if it can be further improved, but I think we made a big step forward from the mess that we were left by the last government. Mr Speaker, it's a bit late to be looking at the proposal. It's in the House of Commons and about to have its report stage. Now let me explain his own policy to the Prime Minister. Around 5,000 people each year are arrested on suspicion of rape and not charged. In, 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 in certain, I know he wants some help from the Home Secretary. In certain, in certain cases, these individuals have gone on to commit further offences and been convicted as a result of the DNA being held on the national database. But his proposal is that for those arrested and not charged, the DNA will be disposed of straight away. I ask him again, why is it right to discard the DNA of those arrested but not charged with rape? I know, um, I know there's some concern. Order! The answer of the Prime Minister will be heard, and I remind the House, the more noise, the greater the difficulty in getting down the order paper. The Prime Minister. I, uh, I understand, Mr Speaker, there's some worry that on, in this government we actually talk to each other. Uh, this, is, uh, this is clearly not the case. Shadow, the Shadow Chancellor raises this issue. It's perfectly clear that the Shadow Chancellor and the leader of the Labour Party don't speak to each other at all. They don't speak at all. And I have, I have, Mr. Speaker, I have the proof. I have the proof. Because this week he made a huge announcement on a massive VAT cut, and yet it was only. Let's, let's focus on an answer to the question, or we'll move on to the next question. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, let me give this lesson to the Prime Minister. It will be better to talk to his colleagues before they put forward the policy, not afterwards. Now, now instead of 
listening to the Home Secretary, why doesn't he listen to Angie Conway from Rape Crisis? This is what she says. With the reporting of rapes on the increase and conviction rates still shockingly low, the evidence this database provides is vital. The more of this data we hold, the more chance we have of catching rapists. She says this really is a no-brainer. Mr Speaker, isn't this another policy on crime that is careless, not thought through and out of touch? Why doesn't he think again? First of all, first of all, if he actually understood the policy, he will know. Yes. If he if he understood the policy, he will know that the police are allowed to apply to keep DNA on the computer, not something that he mentioned. What we tend to find with his questions is that he comes up with some idea, gets it completely wrong in the House of Commons, and we all find afterwards he's given us a partial picture. That is what that is what his questions are all about. Not surprising, he doesn't want to talk. The answer of the Prime Minister must be heard. The Prime Minister. I'm not surprised that he doesn't want to talk about the issues his party's been putting forward this week, because I don't suppose he knew about them. Just order, order the House, order the House needs to simmer down and take whatever tablets are necessary. Mr. Marcus Jones. Mr. Speaker, uh, Mr. Speaker, as a parent, I am appalled that the party opposite advocate burdening our children with ever more unsolicited debts that the party opposite are putting forward with their reckless raft of unfunded tax cuts and spending commitments, of which the VAT cut is the latest. Order! 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 order. The Honourable Gentleman will now resume his seat. Valerie Vaz. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. There, there are 400 avoidable deaths from epilepsy and related conditions. My 10-minute rule bill asks for two things, an immediate referral to a tertiary specialist and in education, support for children uh, with an assessment and additional support so that they can fulfil their potential. Could the Prime Minister meet with me, the Joint Epilepsy Council and Professor Helen Cross, to see how we can progress these provisions, which will not only save costs, but more importantly, save lives? I'd, I'd be delighted to meet with her, and also with Helen Cross, who I, who I know well, uh, who, who works at Great Ormond Street and is an absolutely uh, brilliant uh, clinician and someone I, I know well. Uh, I am keen we improve the support we give to people with epilepsy. Obviously, one of the steps that we're taking is putting in place uh, more personal budgets and more single assessments, which I think will help with epilepsy. M my understanding is that while there's many good things in her bill, there is some concern that it could have too much of a medical approach to special educational needs, something I actually have some sympathy with, but I know that many professionals have their concerns about it, so perhaps we could talk about that when we meet. Mr Stephen Phillips. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Uh, could my right honourable friend tell the House uh, whether, and if so, uh, what the results have been? The Government has made an assessment of what a proposed cut in VAT would do to the British economy at this stage of the cycle. Well, I, I, I do think uh, my right honourable friend raises an important point, which is to make an unfunded cut to VAT right now, when the concerns are about debt and deficit, would actually be the height of insanity. And I think what is now clear is that Labour's Plan B stands for bankruptcy. Yeah. 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 The Prime Minister frequently tells
tells us that we're all in this together. So can he explain why banks have been rewarded with a £2 billion tax cut on their obscene bonus pools and parents of disabled children are being penalised with a benefit cut of £1,400 a year? How is that fair? I tell you what this government has done, which has put in place a £2.5 billion bank levy, raising more than Labour's bonus tax every single year. But I have to say, if members opposite want to see irresponsible people who are earning a lot of money pay proper taxes, perhaps they could explain this. Why did they vote against the measures on disguised earnings in the finance bill that will raise £800 million from people who are giving loans to themselves to dodge taxes? Well, I think that's probably a detail the leader of the Labour Party wasn't really aware of. Mr Andrew George. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Whilst, of course, we, uh, we should not be making a unilateral contribution to the Greek bailout, does the Prime Minister not agree that we have something which would help regenerate the Greek economy and put right a 200-year wrong, and that is to give the marbles back? I'm afraid... Uh, I'm afraid I, I don't agree uh, with the honourable gentleman. Uh, Order! I want to hear the Prime Minister's views on marbles. The Prime Minister. I, uh, well, the, the short answer is that we're not going to lose them. <laughs> Mr William Bain. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is the Prime Minister aware that 670,000 people, uh, two-thirds of whom, according to his government's equality impact assessment, have a disability? will lose up to £13 a week because of his changes in housing benefit under occupancy rules. Isn't this a complete betrayal of his Chancellor's promise not to balance the budget on the backs of the poor? I've looked carefully at this issue, and I know that there are, I know there are concerns. And the point, the, point I'd make, the point I'd make is this. I think it is right that we reform housing benefit. The costs have got completely out of control under the last government, rising to £22 billion. I think it's right that housing benefit reflects the size of a family rather than the size of a house. But we've actually made an exception for people who have carers so that that is taken for allowance for in the housing benefit. So I think that's fair. But I have to say to the party opposite, it's no good saying you're in favour of welfare reform and cutting the costs of welfare, but never being able to find a single part of the bill you agree with. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Prime Minister join me welcoming the new report by the all-party Paediatric Mobility Reform Group? Uh, My wheelchair is my shoes, showing how we can, uh, through partnership working, deliver the wheelchairs that transform young people's lives. Will he meet with me and WizKids ambassadors? to discuss how the government might take this forward. Well, I will certainly, I know WizKids well, an excellent charity, they do a brilliant uh, job. I'll certainly arrange a a meeting for him. Uh, The the point I would make on on wheelchairs, we do want to see is exactly where the health reforms with greater choice and greater opportunity to choose for GPs and patients should come in so people can get the wheelchair of their choice at a time of their needing, rather than at the moment where it is slightly, you know, uh, you have to take what you're given. Mr John Mann. Mr Speaker, uh, in that four of the last five years there have been no mistakes made in the setting of school examination papers. Since the 16th of May this year there have been ten such mistakes made. What does the Prime Minister intend to do for those amongst the 250,000 young people affected who lose either their university of choice 
or their university at all because of this staggering incompetence. Look, the Honourable Gentleman is right. This is not an acceptable situation. I've discussed it with the Education Secretary of State this morning, who in turn has discussed it with Ofqual, who are taking the toughest possible action to root out this failure and to make sure that it doesn't happen again. George Eustace. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will be aware that the former Labour Secretary of State, Lord Hutton, has described current proposals on pension reform as the best chance we have uh, to deliver a sustainable system which is fair to both scheme payers and the taxpayer. But does my right honourable friend agree with me that when it comes to these major long-term issues, we should build the broadest possible consensus? And will he seek the support of both sides of the House for his proposals? I, I thank my honourable gentleman, the honourable friend, for the, the question he gives, and also the way he, the way he puts it. Because the point is this: I think the Hutton report is a good report, and this is not about attacking or down grading public sector pensions. It's about a way of making really good public sector pension um, uh, affordable into the long term. And it's respecting all of the accrued rights that people have. And I think we need to win the argument here on the basis of fairness, that it's right for the taxpayer to put money into public sector pensions, but we do need to know those are affordable for the long term. So the steps that Lord Hutton puts forward are absolutely right. And I hope that the party opposite will take a responsible view and recognise that we we need to make this change for the long-term good of our country. Catherine McKinnell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. 18 months ago, one of my constituents required knee surgery, and he was pleased to hear he only had to wait six weeks. He now needs another operation and has been told he has to wait 10 months. He's in agony and unable to walk. He's understandably angry and wants to know, is this what the Prime Minister meant when he said the NHS was safe in his hands? If she gives me the individual case, I will certainly take it up and look at it. Because the fact is we haven't changed the waiting list targets that have been in place in the NHS for a long time. In particular, the 18-week target, which is part of the NHS constitution. Average waiting times have actually come down in recent months. But the clear lesson is this. If it wasn't for this government putting in £11.5 billion extra, money that the party opposite actually doesn't support, you'd see all waiting times going up. Mr Douglas Carswell. On July the 18th last year, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury stated with regard to the decision to sign Britain up to the uh, Eurozone bailout mechanism that, and I quote, while these decisions were taken by the previous government, this government judges them to be an appropriate response to the crisis. Does this remain in the government's position? Well, I know my honourable friend is pursuing this issue with uh, his normal dogged tenacity. What I'd say to him is the facts of the case are really very clear, which is the last government in the death, as it were, after the election but before the new government was formed, signed us up to the European financial mechanism, which we're still having to pay out under. What this government has done is actually get us out of it by tough negotiation in Brussels so we won't have to contribute after 2013. Dan Jarvis. Mr Speaker, can I associate myself with the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition's expression of condolence for those soldiers who have fallen in Afghanistan? Those who serve are the lions of our country and we must always do everything we can to repay the debt of gratitude we owe them. Mr Speaker, the October 2010 SDSR has been overtaken by events and the world is now a fundamentally different place. So can I ask the Prime Minister again, will he do the right thing for the armed forces and for the country and order a new chapter to this now outdated review? 
really think, I mean, I very much respect what the Honourable Gentleman said, and particularly his fitting tribute to the armed forces, but I really think the idea of totally reopening the defence review at a time, at a time when our armed forces are engaged and doing such a fantastic job is actually the wrong one. And the point I make is this, what the defence review was all about was making sure we have flexible armed forces so they can be committed to different parts of the world and they've got the backing they need. It was about getting rid of the main battle tanks in Germany and putting money into the enablers and the forces of the future. That's what the Defence Review is about. Libya shows that it's working and I think we should stick with it. Stuart Andrew. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, will my right honourable friend welcome the campaign for high-speed rail campaigning outside Parliament today to bring thousands of much-needed jobs to the Midlands and the North to help address the North-South divide? And will he confirm that it will come to Yorkshire? I, I can uh, happily confirm all of those things. I, I do believe if we really are serious about trying to rebalance our economy, make sure we get growth across the country and not just in the southeast, then actually the time for high-speed rail has come and that's why it has my strong support. Mr Wayne David. The Secretary of State for Wales has said that she is prepared to be sacked because of her opposition to government Sucker. policy on high-speed rail. Sucker. Will the Prime Minister take her up on a very kind offer? <laughs> prefer to focus on the fact that in one year as Welsh Secretary, she's secured something that 13 years of your Welsh Secretaries never achieved, which was the electrification of the line between Paddington and Cardiff. Mr Aidan Burley, Speaker, an agrophobic man from Middlesbrough, received so much money on state benefits that he set up his own illegal loans company. At the trial, the judge described him as receiving a staggering amount of money on benefits. Doesn't this show that our welfare system is broken? And will the Prime Minister pledge to redouble its efforts to reform it? But my honourable friend is absolutely right. The people who send us here want us to sort out the welfare system. They want it to be there for people who genuinely need help, but they also want to make sure that if you can work and you're offered a job, you shouldn't be able to live a life on welfare. On this side of the House, we put forward the legislation, we voted for it, but what a pity that the party opposite talk about it, but when the crunch come, they didn't have the guts to back it. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Most people know that Rochdale is the home of cooperation. Next year is the United Nations International Year of Cooperatives. Will the Prime Minister consider visiting Rochdale to show support for mutualism in the 21st century? I, um, I note the excellent record of Prime Ministers visiting Rochdale and uh, what, what, what can happen to them when they get there. So uh, I will. Uh, I'll certainly put it in the, um, in the diary. I'm a strong supporter of cooperatives and mutuals. I think they've got a huge role to play, not just in our economy, but also in the provision of public services. And we'll be making some announcements about that, maybe in Rochdale, in the, in the months to come. Mr Paul Uppel. Earlier this year, the Prime Minister demonstrated a strength of character to talk about the issue of multiculturalism. In view of the fact that I have a Christian first name and a Sikh surname, I try to combine the best of my traditional Indian values with my core British values. Would he not agree with me that we could learn a lot from our Indian partners in this respect, many of whom define themselves by their nationality first and foremost, regardless of their ethnic or religious background? Yeah. 
no, I absolutely pay tribute to my honourable friend and the work he does on this issue. I think it's absolutely vital as a country that we build a stronger national identity and people uh, clearly feel that, yes, of course, you can have all sorts of different uh, religious identities and, indeed, cultural identities, but it's very important we build a strong British identity, and he's living proof of that. Luciana Berger. Will decide whether to increase the EU's carbon reduction target to 30% by 2020. This is a commitment made in the coalition agreement. According to reports, the vote will be very close, but it won't pass because just one Conservative MEP out of 25 will vote for the 30% target. Will the Prime Minister guarantee that all his MEPs will honour the coalition agreement and vote for the 30% target tomorrow? Let me be absolutely clear we are committed to the 30% target and nothing is going to change that. But I'll do a deal with the Honourable Lady. I will work on my MEPs if she promises to work on her MEPs, who in recent months have voted for a higher EU budget, new EU taxes, and against an opt-out on the Working Time Directive. They even voted against scrapping first-class air travel for MEPs. So uh, perhaps uh, she'd like to fly over and give them a talking to. Last but not least, Mr Robert Buckland. National Audit Office estimating the cost of criminal reoffending to the economy at £10 billion a year. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that the need to reduce reoffending levels from the unacceptably high rates that we inherited from the last yes. government yeah, yeah. must be the priority of any penal policy? I completely agree with my honourable friend who has considerable experience because of his career before coming to do this place. The point is we inherited a system where each prison place costs £45,000, where half of prisoners reoffend within a year of getting out, half of prisoners are on drugs, and over 10% of them are foreigners who shouldn't be in this country in any event. The key we have to do is make sure that we reduce costs in the criminal justice system by making prison work and reforming prison rather than by cutting sentences. Order. Point of order, Mr. Ang. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.